Coming up on Stu Does America, has there ever been more hypocrisy in the media than we are seeing with these protests? No. But we have the receipts. We'll show them all to you. Uh, Are the police really uh, these monsters they're being portrayed as? We have the stats on that. And author Robert Bryce joins us to talk about what the main cause of inequality is around the globe. And it's not what the media is telling you. Watch the show completely free on YouTube. Just search for my name, Stu, and I will be the first result. Come join us. If you're watching on YouTube right now, take a second right now. Click the thumbs up. Why? Because it honestly just tells YouTube that you're an engaged viewer and that they should get the show in front of more people, which is, of course, true. It costs you nothing and it helps us grow the show and keep it free. Click the thumbs up every single time you watch, even if you don't know if you like it yet. I'm, I'm honestly fine with that. Or be all fancy like and get a subscription to Blaze TV for this show and a ton more. Just go to blazetv.com slash stew. Enter the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And I get to knock 10 bucks off your price, which is great. So a lot of conservatives have pointed out the media hypocrisy on these protests already. I got it. But amazingly, I think it's even worse than they thought. Stu does America. Just a few weeks ago, a Jewish funeral drew thousands of mourners to the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn in New York City. They were gathered to honor the passing of a rabbi from coronavirus. And predictably, it was enough to draw this maniacal tweet from the city's terrible mayor. My message to the Jewish community and all communities is this simple. Uh, the, The time for warnings is past. I've instructed the NYPD to proceed immediately to summons or even arrest those who gather in large groups. This is about stopping this disease and saving lives, period. Today, the funeral for George Floyd drew thousands of people. Did the mayor similarly scold them? Of course not. Tonight, the city halls across the country are lighting up in crimson and gold in recognition of George Floyd. We won't let this moment of reform pass without real action. Look, we could easily do shows every day pointing out the double standards by the media and politicians. But what we are seeing now may very well be unprecedented. I can't honestly say I have ever seen more hypocrisy on a single issue than the way the media has treated the relationship between COVID-19 and these protests. And that is quite a statement. But the vitriol and the proximity make it impossible to ignore. This isn't a flip-flop from like, you know, what, five years ago or even five months ago. The media went from full out, you're going to kill grandma by protesting, to you're Satan if you don't protest Within a couple of weeks, this has led to completely insane moments, including this one that actually made its way into public policy in California. Social social outdoor gatherings of up to 12 people are allowed and protests of up to 100 people. Both the protest and the social gathering are outdoors, but you can have 88 more people at the protest yelling and chanting something that actually makes it more dangerous. Why? Media members know they're supposed to get in line with whatever the talking point of the day is. But you're really testing them on this one. You're being mean by requiring this much of a mental gymnastics routine. How can you keep a straight face when you're passionately saying the thing that's 180 degrees from what you were passionately saying the week before? Watch and learn. 
Those people were protesting measures Governor Whitmer put in place to keep those people safe from the spread of coronavirus, of let's use the American military to police the streets of American cities, uh, something, by the way, that the American military is not trained to do. They have absolutely no idea uh, how to police New York City. Uh, But Tom Cotton uh, is all ready to go along with Donald Trump on this, even though no one else is. He could be shouting those protests down, too. They're his people. Man. He could be saying, go home, don't do this. I don't want you doing this. You don't represent what I'm about. And please, show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. When I go through, through New York City, an army of immigrants and people of color and poor people who are keeping this city running. They are disinfecting offices. They are cleaning people. They are changing bedpans and they are working. And those people are out there complaining because they don't have haircuts. Who the hell do you think you are? Open your eyes, America. Open your eyes. We are teetering on a dictatorship. We are te- This is chaos. Has the president, I, I'm listening, is the president declaring war on Americans? What is happening here? I mean, Lemon's even worse than Cuomo in that clip. That's hard to do. The hypocrisy is so aggressively in your face right now, it's impossible to ignore. Like this one from NPR. President Trump will hit the campaign trail this month despite the deadly coronavirus pandemic, which continues to impact the lives and livelihoods of households across the nation. The rallies will be tremendous, a campaign manager said. And just two days later, quite a different tone. Thousands of voices at a protest in D.C. came together to sing the Bill Withers classic, Lean On Me, led by local musician Kenny Sway. It sounded like unity and togetherness, he says. It sounded like love and pureness of the people. Mm, I mean, if Kenny Sway's there, you gotta go. Or how about Governor Wolf of Pennsylvania, who called people cowardly for wanting to open up their own business a while ago and then literally walked arm in arm with protesters for George Floyd. To his very minimal credit, he did admit, quote, that was inconsistent. (laughs) I acknowledge that. But he also tried to justify his actions, quote, but I was trying to show support for a cause, the eradication of racism that I think is very very important. And I was trying to show my support for that effort. Oh, so you're deciding what risks to take based on what you feel is important. Uh, Freedom, make that decision, you think? We should start a country based on that idea, making your own decisions and calculating your own risks. That would be wild. You know who else thought uh, it was a very important thing uh, to uh, risk getting the virus? Some people who wanted to feed their family and open their business. No, I mean, sorry, people trying to feed their family and cowardly uh, open their business. I can easily fill this whole show with a hypocrisy and mental gymnastics that the media and politicians have attempted to try to bend reality to their political will over the past few weeks alone. And there's value in that approach. I, I do not dismiss it. But what if this is a lot worse than a run of the mill hypocrisy? We all agree on the basics, right? When the right was protesting, they said it was dangerous and deadly. And now when the left is protesting COVID-19, huh? (laughs) Oh, that went away a long time ago. Most conservatives have been saying that this proves they never really believed it was that dangerous in the first place. They were just using scare tactics to make the right look bad. That is certainly possible. I don't dismiss it. But it's also giving the left a giant break 
it's by far the most charitable reading of all of this. Everyone is assuming they were lying a few weeks ago. What if they're lying now? What if they did believe it was dangerous before and they still believe it's dangerous now, but they're prioritizing their political power over all of these people's lives? Think about it this way. If the KKK was handling the messaging of the relationship between coronavirus and these protests, what part of the message would change? You have hundreds of thousands of minorities and their supporters who are going to stand next to each other and breathe in each other's droplets in the middle of a pandemic. You have a minority population that has statistically shown to be the most vulnerable to this virus, and they want to go all in and trade inhales and exhales for a few hours. I understand why you wouldn't try to stop that behavior if you were in the KKK, but everyone in that march should ask themselves, why isn't the media trying to warn us? Why are Democrats encouraging us to come out here? Like, I hope for the best. Still, only about one in 20 people have had COVID-19 in America, and it's a much smaller percentage who are infectious right at this moment. Inside or out, most large gatherings won't wind up as super spreader events, but some will. And that's the sad truth about what we're watching. If you could run a scientific experiment to test the transmissibility of COVID-19 outdoors, how would you structure that experiment? You probably would gather a ton of people in close quarters and have them engage in, say, physical activity like a march or something. And maybe yell and chant as loud as they could. Lots of deep breaths. Really suck in those droplets. Of course, you could never actually run that experiment because it would be inhumane. But here we are. The Atlantic famously wrote about Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice when they slowly opened up a few hair salons and tattoo parlors. This is totally different. This is legitimately a crazy experiment in human sacrifice. Going from legally preventing all gatherings above 10 people to encouraging 10, 20, 30,000 people to all stand shoulder to shoulder and arm in arm while screaming? It's completely insane. And it shows that the people in Washington and many in the media not only don't care about you and I, they don't care about their own followers or voters either. And as you probably know, I've been saying for a very long time that pretty much anything outside I like to rate is basically okay on the COVID front. I've looked at an immense amount of data and try to, you know, I try to my best to understand what activities can provide a basic return uh, to life without as much risk as you, you know, you got to keep the risk as low as possible, but you got to try to live your life. I think outdoor activities are a great option. It's not to, you know, it's not to say that I can never be passed outside, you know, but as long as you're somewhat cognizant of social distancing guidelines, you're probably okay. That's how I'm kind of operating right now. Well, they are really testing that thesis with these protests. Look at this footage. I, I mean, it is tens of thousands of people jammed right up next to each other, screaming. You're telling me there aren't a ton of people in that crowd that would have stayed away if public figures on their side of the aisle were warning them of near certain death like they were a couple weeks ago? I'm not trying to downplay the murder of George Floyd. I remain very pissed off about it. I'm glad there were charges filed. There are some bad cops, and I want them in jail. Sometimes police do use too much force. I want that to stop. But I want to make something perfectly clear. The coronavirus story is a much 
more important story than the George Floyd story. It is much more important to stop the spread of COVID-19 than it is to stop police shootings of any race. How can I say that? About 55 unarmed people are shot and killed by police every year. It's also about an hour's worth of coronavirus deaths. About a thousand people total of all races, guilty or not, presenting an imminent threat or not, are shot and killed by police every year. Or, in coronavirus terms, Friday. Just this past Friday, one day. We all know that having a few marches is not going to solve every future incident of police brutality, but even if it could, it would still be the right thing to do to tell people not to go gather like this right now. We have lost a century's worth of police shootings to coronavirus since freaking April. All while the media and the left are encouraging their own supporters to be human guinea pigs. Again, I'm relatively optimistic that outdoor transmission rates are really low. And, you know, thanks for the the I guess the callous disregard of human life that the media and the left are engaged in right now. We're good. They're going to have really good data after this. What a wonderful experiment. If there is no spike of cases from one of these events, we can pretty safely assume that outdoor transmission is so difficult. We're probably just a go to open up NFL stadiums and hold outdoor concerts right away with really few restrictions, especially if you're wearing a mask, which a lot of the rioters were doing just all for the wrong reasons. Now, I know I have strong opinions on this and the science can be difficult to sort through. So in the interest of fairness, let me present an opposing view from this left-wing journalist. Some of you might be wondering why last month I was writing articles about how leaving your house is basically bludgeoning the elderly, and this month I'm writing articles about the importance of large social gatherings. And after a ton of research, scientists have discovered that the X factor in determining whether a gathering is dangerous is whether or not I, Mark Diamond, personally support it. There's something about the dynamics of the coronavirus mixed with my personal political beliefs that made it important to snitch on your friends for gathering last week and important to snitch on them for not supporting gatherings this week. Science is crazy. For example, science determined that white people gathering in the park last week were basically Ben Stiller from Happy Gilmore, and now they have a social duty to make large gatherings a cardinal part of their identity. They've been able to A-B test this with causes I don't support, like religious gatherings, family events, and the science shows that coronavirus is still rampant at these gatherings. Something about the molecules, in my opinions, that made groups of five bad, but groups of 10,000 good, running a store bad, but looting a store good. I'm not a scientist, but health officials everywhere have been experiencing the exact same phenomenon. Hey, I'm as surprised as you are that my opinions made Corona live on surfaces last month and immune to them this month. It also appears that my opinions have the ability to change someone like Kanye West's anatomy to make them fundamentally good or bad. Scientists have also found that Donald Trump plays a big role in this and that I choose my opinions in opposition to his, which then allows Corona to use that information when deciding which gatherings that it plans to infect. You know, it's a very complicated issue, and all you can do at home right now is follow me and other bloggers on Twitter as our opinions constantly change so you can figure out which causes make you a murderer and which ones make you a hero. There you go. It's just that easy. Science is crazy. Uh, if you're like me, you've been going through the coronavirus era here with a little bit of extra time because you, had, you used to be at the gym like 24 hours a day, just a gym rat. And now you've been spending that time kind of eating more fried foods instead. So what do we do with the extra pounds that we've gained here? Um, let me give you an idea here. Fast Blast. Fast Blast is different because it's a different way of thinking about losing weight. Um, I've lost about eight pounds so far. I have, I, to be honest, I have not been particularly 
doing a good job following my program. I got to get better at it. But I mean, I've still lost eight pounds. It's, it's just you just lose weight fast with fast blast. Um, and the idea is kind of based on the intermittent fasting thing. You uh, you have some periods of the day where you don't eat, um, and then twice a, a week you have these days where you would use um, fast blast smoothies to get you through the day. These are great smoothies. They're convenient, easy to use, squeezable pouch. They taste great, uh, and it fills you up. It, it's it's a weird thing. Um, I don't know how to explain it. I mean, I'm not a scientist. As you heard, science is crazy. We just covered that in the last segment. But I will say, if you do your own homework and you feel like this is right for you, uh, go to fastblast.com. Uh, fastblast.com slash blaze. Always the slash blaze part. you got to use that because that's how they know you like this stupid show. But you get started today with Fast Blast and, and it's lose some weight, lose the COVID-19, get a healthier, happier, and smaller you with Fast Blast. We had a Robert Bryce on a month ago or so, and in that month, uh, the world's completely, I mean, completely changed. Uh, for one, we have these riots that have been going on, the pandemic, uh, rioters, looters. Uh, apparently, they're immune from the pandemic. We're learning that. Uh, some protesters as well. Uh, the protesters were chanting about some of them destroying capitalism, defunding the police. The protesters, I mean, whether they're conservative or liberal or libertarian, I mean, I guess if they're conservative or libertarian, grandma's life is at risk because of their selfish behavior. But the other way, not so much. Last time Robert and I talked, we focused a lot on civilization, the possible collapse of it. We talked about a a sense of urgency, like it was something that could happen in the next, I mean, few years, maybe decade. Well, it took less than a month, so no big deal. His documentary is new. It's just out. Uh, It's great. It's called Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. It just came out on iTunes. Uh, Robert Bryce, thanks for coming back on the program. I appreciate it. Happy to be on with you, Stu. Uh, it's a great uh, documentary, and it was quite an undertaking. I mean, you go all over the planet to tell a story that uh, I don't think people would internalize the way that you, that you you present it. I think people would look at electricity as you know, whatever. I turn the lights on, it works. You really use it as as a as a as a uh, a way to explain the entire world and the way it looks. Well, right, and that was one of the objectives from the from the beginning was to be able to look at the world through the lens of electricity. This is the world's most important and fastest growing form of energy, but why are so many people still in the dark? And so in the film, we used my kitchen refrigerator um, as a metric because people, you know, electricity, you don't see it, you don't touch it, you don't smell it. People don't have a good sense for what it is, right? So uh, my kitchen refrigerator, I plugged it into a watt meter. It uses a thousand kilowatt hours per year. There are 3 billion people in the world today who use less electricity than my kitchen refrigerator. And we went to India where there are 300 million, in one country alone, there are 300 million people that have no access to electricity at all. So, you know, the, the, the inequality, we talk about inequality all the time, but when it comes to real inequality and poverty, the key metric to keep in mind is electricity, which is one of the reasons we made the film. Yeah, I never thought of inequality, which is something that has just become this political term that everyone throws around. Uh, you know, when you look at it, the basic... Uh, the, the the foundation of it, the the political media would say it's because of evil capitalists, it's because of rich people, it's because of this and that. You are able to bring it down to this one fundamental thing. Yes, of course, there's a scope within the realm of the people who do have electricity. But if you're out of that world, you have basically no chance in the year 2020. Well, right. And it, and and one of the things that, and I thought about this a long time about, well, what is the differentiating factor between Iceland and Lebanon? We went both places. 
what's the difference between Colorado and Puerto Rico? Well, one of the key, I, I think maybe the key factor is integrity. Um, I call them the, the, the juice imperatives, integrity, capital, and fuel. You cannot have a functioning electric grid if the system, if the society that you're living in doesn't have integrity. Because if that system lacks integrity, then the people who are using electricity, like in Iraq, they'll steal it. Or as we saw in Lebanon, in Beirut, in the Hezbollah-controlled parts of the city, those people don't pay for electricity. So the grids and the, and the societies rely on integrity. And if you don't have integrity in the system, if people don't think the system is legit, they're not going to have lights consistently. Hmm. Let's let's um, let's bounce around the world a little bit here um, and go through some of these countries that you're mentioning, because uh, sure. it, it is that is a really important part of the story. I think as, as an American, I think of, OK, we have electricity. It's always there for us whenever we need it. And there are we I know, you know, intellectually, there's a lot of people around the world who don't have that access. You talk a lot about that sort of middle area of people who have access to electricity, but it's not reliable. It turn, they have to schedule their entire day about when they're going to have electricity when they don't. People designing apps to try to warn you when the electricity is going to turn off. I mean, these are these are problems that the average American has never even contemplated. That's exactly right. And, and that was one of the reasons we went to Beirut, um, because I mean, in fact, we learned about it. We landed at Rafiq Hariri Airport. There were four of us, all all Americans, uh, American guys, three of us, three of us from Texas, and and one guy from Los Angeles. And we land and we get our gear loaded into the the hotel van to take us to our our hotel in central Beirut. We didn't get more than five minutes away from the airport before our driver, Hussein Mosul, is giving us the lowdown on the generator mafia in Lebanon. That, in fact, blackouts are so common in Beirut. Every day they have blackouts lasting at least three hours. So everyone in Lebanon pays two electric bills because they can't rely on the electric grid for uh, reliable power. Yeah, the generator mafia was a fascinating part of this where people of some means are able to buy large generators that can, it seemed like maybe power a couple blocks of, of homes and they just wind up being their own separate power company. And it was interesting to see how a lot of the people there talked about them this this sort of negative term, generator mafia. But I know you had one expert on who was looking at it as like, this is needed. Like these are almost like little companies who are sitting here pr- providing a much needed service to people and we shouldn't look at it so negatively. Yeah, that, w- that was uh, one of the professors that we interviewed at uh, American University in Beirut. And he said exactly that, that, look, you know, these are business people and they're filling a need. And he talked about his own parents saying, well, if the generator mafia didn't exist, they would have to buy their own generator or they would be without uh, electricity for long periods of the day. So this, um, you know, one, it shows entrepreneurship works, <laughs> right? But it also shows something I think more important more important, Stu, which is that people will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need. And that's one of the takeaways, I think, from the film. You know, we're obsessed about, uh, uh, there are a lot of people in the United States obsessed and talking about climate change and we need to do this, that, and the other. Well, when you have 3 billion people in the world who are living in dire electricity poverty, once you see that they are not going to accept that way of living, not if they can help it, then it does change your reference point and it sure changed mine. Yeah, I think you see a lot of that too uh, in the documentary when you're talking about India, 
where I mean, you show that people are just stealing electricity. The numbers were insane about how much of the electricity that they actually generate that just gets stolen and never paid for. People just hooking into lines and drawing it right to their homes. How widespread is this uh, is this practice and what does it mean for the for the for the country as a whole? Well, I, I think it means that the system there simply lacks integrity. Um, we didn't talk about it in the film. I talk about it in 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 the book that we when I was on your show, you know, a few mm-hmm. months ago, I, I came out with a new book as well called uh, "A Question of Power: Electricity and the Wealth of Nations." But in in that book, I talk about what happened in Iraq after Saddam Hussein was. Uh, was captured and hanged, electricity theft went through the roof. And why? Well, people weren't concerned about Saddam, you know, taking retribution. You didn't steal from Saddam because you might, you know, you might get killed, right? But once that society broke down and, you know, Saddam was a bad guy, but he kept a lid on, you know, he had a very much control over the whole system. Once Saddam was was captured and and and, and executed, electricity theft went through the roof. And that's what happens in societies where integrity um, is lacking, that the system, the electric grid will be among the first social systems to fail because people will just steal it. They won't they won't pay for it. There's no it's like a victimless crime in their view. Hmm. Um, coming back to America here for a second, um, you see, you know, you show Colorado. Sure. You call you show Indian Point. I, I, I think I mentioned you last time that I grew up or you know, was spent summers at my grandparents house right near Indian Point. And it's something and it's just a cool thing to look at as you're going by. And it's, it's, it's an amazing um, innovation. And you realize what a waste it is that for political reasons, they're just going to wind up closing this place. At least it looks like it supplies about a quarter of Manhattan's power. You see all this stuff going on where we're fiddling here and saying, well, we shouldn't we shouldn't go after the, the best new nuclear innovations and we should hold ourselves back here and let's use wind power and solar. And then you show Puerto Rico, which this, these are people who are suffering and have suffered after the tragedy with nothing. And it's hard to imagine that this is with the close relationship to the United States that they have that something like this could even be allowed to go on where citizens would be there for seven, eight, nine months with no electricity. I don't understand how these two worlds can exist essentially in the same country. It, it is remarkable. I mean, and, and, and more than a little depressing. Yeah. Um, l- let's start with New York and then talk about Puerto Rico. But um, they, uh, in April, in fact, um, the Unit 2 reactor, which is the reactor and the turbine hall that I saw, was shuttered. And for all for politics. It had nothing to do. Well, okay. Intergy, the company that owns the, 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 the reactor, was had to take a political stance and say, well, it's not economic. Well, it, it would be economic if it was getting the same kind of subsidies that wind energy is getting in New York. And therein lies one of the great ironies is that the Natural Resources Defense Council and Riverkeeper, two of the main groups that pushed for the closure of Indian Point, kept saying, oh, well, we'll replace it with renewables. You cannot build wind energy in New York. And in fact, Wind energy in in rural New York is so unpopular that the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, had to add a provision in the state budget in February that effectively strips local communities of their ability to block wind projects. Mm. And just last week, uh, the state, over the objections of local towns, said uh, that they're going to approve a very large wind project, 300 megawatts, over the objections of local towns in upstate New York. It's just remarkable 
and 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 yet they're closing one of the most reliable sources of electricity in New York, the the Indian Point uh, in, uh, Energy Center. Well, the documentary is great. It's really well put together. Uh, you have, you know, uh, you go all over the world. Great experts. Michael Schellenberger's in it. Uh, Roger Pilkey Jr.'s in it. I mean, really smart voices um, from across the spectrum that can really kind of break this stuff down. It's great. Tell everyone where they can get uh, the documentary and the book. Sure. Thanks. Um, so we're on the web at juicethemovie.com. You can see the film on iTunes, on Amazon, on pretty much all the streaming services. Um, you can look at our Facebook page, uh, Facebook slash juice the movie we're on twitter at juice for all uh if you want to look at the book look at my website robertbryce.com i'm on twitter as well at power hungry pwr hungry so uh you can't miss us if you look for juice uh, it's not tupac shakur's movie that was uh you know uh all props to tupac mm-hmm. uh but I'm kind of like Tupac. I have a movie called Juice now too. So yeah, you know, I mean, we, I, when know, I think Tupac, I think Robert Bryce. That's kind of like I think they go hand in hand. It's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> and you'll need electricity <laughs> to get to any of these places to get Robert Bryce's stuff. Uh, the author of uh, A Question of Power, executive producer of the documentary Juice: How Electricity uh, Explains the World. Thanks so much for coming on the program, Robert Bryce. Thanks a lot, Stu. All right, back in a second. Yesterday, we showed you Chris Cuomo's butt on television. Today, something much worse. It's Chris Cuomo dancing. They should not only have TikTok deleted from every phone in America, but this should pretty much destroy the nation of China for doing this to us. Uh, Look, the Cuomo family is awful. And in case you have to protect yourself from coronavirus anytime soon, we now have the new Andrew Cuomo is awful masks. Uh, they're available now. Check them out. StuDoesMerch.com. It's StuDoesMerch.com. Back in a second. Our next guest is a fellow and deputy director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor at City Journal, uh, Raphael Menwal. Thanks so much for coming on the program, Raphael. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I want to start with your City Journal piece. Uh, It's entitled The Toxic Narrative About uh, Police is Wrong. And as you uh, may know, if you watch this program, uh, we're nerds and we we like numbers a lot here. Uh, So if you like that, you're going to love this story from Manuel uh, or from Raphael. Um, This is a uh, this is a um, you go through, I think, something that's uncomfortable to say for a lot of people. Right now, I think what we're supposed to say is this is a terrible problem. It's on the level of COVID-19, maybe more important. We're having these protests right now. And that, to me, is uh, completely misleading. And when you look at the numbers, this narrative of a genocide on minorities from cops is just just not true. No, it's not true at all. Um, in fact, what the numbers do show is that while, you know, sure, there are individual cases uh, in which police fail uh, to meet the standard that American police should be able to meet, um, 
what, what they show is a great deal of professionalism and restraint, right? Uh, for example, right uh, across the United States in 2018, police fired their weapons 3,043 times. Um, this sounds like a lot, right? It's multiple times a day across the country. But when you consider the fact that we live in a country with 330 million people, uh, almost 700,000 police officers making more than 10.3 million arrests a year and having you know more than 50 million other enforcement type contacts uh, with the public, those numbers start to look a lot less dramatic. Um, and, and, and one uh, data point that I, I, I cite in my piece that, that I think illustrates this quite, quite nicely is that police use deadly force in just 0.003% of all arrests. Um, that number does not indicate to me a police department out of control. Um, that number does not indicate to me a police department engaged in the act of genocide. Um, you know, and, and I think that kind of rhetoric is extremely unhelpful. And I think it backs uh, people into a corner that the left now finds itself in, uh, which is, uh, you know, sort of defending the logical extension of the argument they've been making over the last decade, which is now to abolish the police. And I think that's only going to function uh, to hurt some of the most vulnerable people across our country. Yeah, I mean, you're leaving them completely uh, without defense. And, and to that point, in the in the uh, section where you're talking about that stat, again, I want to repeat it, 0.003% of arrests, uh, force deadly forces used. In that same section, though, you talk about how not, it's only 0.4% of officers at maximum actually even use their firearm, let alone uh, <laughs> let alone uh, kill someone, meaning that 99.6% of officers across the United States go the entire year with ever, without firing their gun except for at the range. That's exactly right. And I, I, again, I think this is a function of the fact that over the last few decades, policing has been professionalized to a great degree, um, such that uh, police officers across departments are, are better trained um, and, and better aware of their surroundings and able to sort of discern when it is appropriate to use deadly force. Again, that does not mean that mistakes don't or won't happen, right? Of course they do. I think everyone is rightly horrified by what they saw on the video uh, depicting the death of George Floyd. Uh, but, but we can acknowledge those individual failings without tarring uh, the institution of policing as a whole, which again, I think just, just leaves us in a really uh, sort of difficult place where we can't really uh, have a conversation that moves us in any kind of positive direction. I, I would also note too that it's not just deadly force. Even when we look at non-deadly force, the case for an out-of-control police force does not get much stronger. There was, a, there was a study I cite in the piece that looks at uh, uh, over a million calls for service across three mid-sized police departments, one in Louisiana, one in North Carolina, one in Arizona. And those uh, calls for service led to over 114,000 arrests. And in less than 0.7% of those arrests was deadly force, uh, was, was any force used, I should say, mm. right? So, so 99 plus percent of all arrests are affected without any use of force whatsoever. And when use of force is deployed, 98% uh, of the time, it results in absolutely no discernible injury to the suspect. In that study, just one instance of, of, of a fatal police shooting uh, was, was covered in those 114,000 uh, arrests, which, which should give you an idea of, of really kind of what the proper scale of this problem is. Yeah, and, and you made the point about this improving. You use the word professionalized. And I think we've, we've seen a lot of that. You talk about in your piece about the numbers in New York 
And New York is just an example, but it's a it's a pretty stark example as how far we've come from the 70s through the 90s and all the way up to 2016. Can you run through those numbers? Do you know them off the top of the head or I can I can get them up from your piece? No, no. I, I think I remember at least some of them off the top of my head. I know that in 1971, for example, the NYPD discharged their firearms more than 800 times. I know that they wounded more than 220 people and that they killed 93. Um, and this was when the department was much smaller than it is now and when the population was much lower than it is now, I would note. Um, but when you consider the fact that in 2016, uh, those numbers were, were were down dramatically to the point where we, the NYPD killed just nine people, I think just wounded uh, around 20. Um, that That's an extreme, that's an extraordinary amount of progress. And one of my problems with the contours of this debate or with the political posture of the left uh, around this debate is that when we looked at the protests that took place in New York City, city. There, not a single modicum of that progress was reflected uh, in the criticisms being lobbed at the NYPD. Mm. And, and this is one of, uh, I think, going to be the central problems of this debate, because how do we move forward if that kind of progress doesn't temper the rhetoric uh, that the left is using today to call for abolishing the police, then I'm not sure uh, you know, how much more room there is for improvement that would please anyone. You know, it's funny. That's a great point. And that's what's so frustrating about these debates. I feel like every single time we have a bad incident, we use that anecdotal evidence to paint this giant picture of systemic abuse. And then we stop. It's left to conservatives to kind of say, wait a minute, let's look at this bigger picture. That's not what the story actually is. It reminds me very much of, of, of the David Hogg era from a couple of years ago, where it just wasn't OK to say that people weren't killing each other all the time. It wasn't OK to say that violence was actually coming down. It wasn't OK to say that law abiding gun owners were actually not just murderous and killing people at schools all the time. And if you can't bring facts into the debate, you can't have a debate. And I feel like that might just be the goal of all of this. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And actually, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up the David Hogg point because, you know, you, you hear a lot about the enforcement disparities uh, between the United States and, say, other Western European democracies when it comes to incarceration, when it comes to police deadly use of force. Um, but one of the things that, that people don't seem to be able to calculate in their head is that the United States is also home to a lot more serious gun violence than a lot of those countries. And this is a point that the left never hesitates to make within the context of the gun control debate, yet it does not seem to translate into their thinking on criminal justice reform. I mean, what, there is a good reason why we have a much higher prison population. There are good reasons why police are more likely to use deadly force here in the United States. And it does have a lot to do with the fact that as they are willing to recognize in other contexts, uh, we have more gun violence here. And, and, and not only do we have more gun violence here? It's more concentrated here, right? The, our violence problem is not evenly distributed across the United States, mm -hmm. right? More than uh, 50% of murders happen in just 2% of U.S. counties. Uh, the reality is, is, is that uh, it, crime is, is both demographically and geographically concentrated in important ways that actually inform uh, police-citizen interactions, right? We, we see a lot of data about how much uh, disproportionality there is uh, between uh, blacks in terms of their share of the population and, and their share of, say, police shooting victims. Uh, but again, there are other disparities that inform that. For example, uh, black men are about eight times more likely to commit a homicide than their white counterparts. They're about six times more likely to be the victim of a homicide. Those data inform 
the deployment of our police resources, which in turn affect uh, the frequency with which police interact with people of certain demographic groups. And that is going to be reflected in these top line statistics that the left just doesn't seem to have any real interest in looking into with any depth. Mm. That's a great points. Great points, Raphael. Um, let me give you one more here. This is a uh... Probably the uh, this is this is the marquee argument from the left. The New York Times is making it. They say in Minneapolis, uh, they bit out a big article. Black people in Minneapolis are as a share of the population. Uh, they're 19 percent of the population. They're only nine percent of the police officers. And they make a big part about how uh, they are 58 percent of the subjects of police use of force. This is the type of chart, and and they put this out there without any of the context you just talked about. That's the type of chart, though, that people see and they say, this is obviously out of control. How do you explain it? Yeah, no, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, you, you don't explain it, right? This is the problem. We, there are statistics which are technically true, which can be twisted and taken out of context to make arguments that they don't actually support. And this is one example of that, right? We also know, for example, that black men constitute about 7% of the population, yet are responsible for almost 50% of all murders. That is an extreme disparity that actually mirrors uh, pretty closely the disparity that was just up on the screen. And I think that actually does a, a, a quite a a lot of work in informing just why we see those disparities in enforcement. And, and we can't ignore that if we're going to have a real conversation about how to move forward uh, from a policy standpoint. And, and we also can't ignore that if we want to make sure that the lives of, of Black men and women in neighborhoods around uh, our, our, our nation's cities are, are going to be preserved. Because the reality is, is that if you pull police out of these areas, those crime disparities are going to persist and those communities are going to be left uh, holding the bag and fending for themselves uh, in light of this violence. And I, we've had some really good examples of that. Uh, Chicago is just is one very recent one, right? The, the, the weekend before the one that just passed, while police were busy quelling protests in other parts of the city of Chicago, um, that, that city saw its most violent weekend of the year. Mm. May 31st was the most violent day in Chicago's history since 1961. That is not a coincidence. Uh, and and, and we, we leave people to their own devices at our peril, at their peril, mm. I should say. One last one here before we go. God, geez, I mean, and that's just, that's, a, that's an amazing point. I mean, we're trying to honor one person being killed in one incident with one police officer. We've got 17 people, I believe it is, nationwide who are killed in the riots themselves. But now you're talking about, you know, the highest uh, violence point in one city because the police are everywhere else trying to do other things. That's, a, that's an incredible stat, and it does inform our defund the police debate quite a bit, I think. Um, let me give you one more thing here before we leave. You say 7% uh, uh, 7% of the population are black males. They're responsible for over 50% of the murders. People will say when they hear that, you're, you're just being a racist, right? I, we would, I know, agree that uh, there is no argument to be made that black men are more inherently vi uh, violent than any other group. So what explains this disparity? Because it is, a, it is a, a, a stark contrast. You know, it is a stark contrast. And to the people who would accuse uh, someone who points that disparity out of racism, I would also note that while black men are about 7% of the population, they also make up about 50% of homicide victims. Mm. And that matters too, right? And that should inform our policy decisions as well. But you know, uh, there are, are, are plentiful theories out there as to what informs this, right? You have the sort of root cause argument that this is all driven by poverty um, and, and opportunity. And, and I would push back against that idea simply by, you know, 
know, pointing out uh, the fact that that crime rates have not generally been uh, very responsive to socioeconomic conditions. Uh, New York, for example, has a, a poverty rate uh, that's just about the same as it was in 1980, yet significantly less crime. Uh, I, I think ultimately this comes down to a culture problem. Um, I think uh, uh, the fatherlessness issue uh, certainly drives some of this, but but I think you know ultimately this is a culture problem. There's a criminologist named Barry Latzer whose work I respect very much. He's posited what's called the crime adversity mismatch theory that basically rules out um, other non-cultural explanations. And you know that again that doesn't mean that there aren't things that society can do uh, to to make these situations better. But I do think uh, that we have to. Uh, keep responsibility where it belongs, and that is with the communities themselves, which, again, is not to say that they should, they should be left alone or that, you know, that there's, there's nothing we can do through the, through the realm of public policy. Um, but I do think culture uh, predominantly explains a lot of the disparities that we see. Mm. Raphael Memoir, he's a uh, fellow and deputy director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute and packed an appropriate amount of statistics into this interview. We can very much respect that here uh, on Stu Does America. Conservative nerds unite. That's us. Uh, go to uh, his city journal piece. You got to see this one. If you are talking to anyone, to anyone about this topic and you have not read this piece, the toxic narrative about police is wrong in the city journal. You need to do that because you will understand this argument uh, so thoroughly. It's I don't even know. I don't even know if there's an argument against it, honestly, when you go into this much depth. Raphael, thank you so much for doing this and uh, I'd love to have you back on again sometime. It would be my pleasure to thank you. All right. Back in a second. Man, we ran late tonight. I'm sorry about that. Tomorrow we're back with an all-new show, and we will try not to include any jiggly parts of Chris Cuomo. We'll see you tomorrow.